Claudia, thank you for coming to the Melbourne Barbell Medicine training camp. It was awesome. This is actually, it's actually only the second training camp because everything else is a seminar. But uh, it was very last minute, so we hope, we got, hope you guys liked it. Thank you for showing up. Uh, we're going to do this Q&A old school style, which is, me, which is kind of like around the room. Raise your hand. Uh, and then you have to incriminate yourself with the question. So you can't just say, like, anonymously, like, how do you get your beard so, so nicely lined up? Like, you have to actually say that out loud. Uh, <laughs> to Tom, not to me. To Tom. Yeah, so the question's about in older populations, like, is there a problem with using the stretch reflex in a squat, for instance, due to this concern over, like, decreased tissue extensibility and tolerance? Uh, so to answer your question, yes, we work with a lot of folks who are in advanced biological age, or chronological age. Um, they might not have uh, advanced biological age, but that's for another deal. I think that I, while I can understand the concern for you know, general detraining that occurs in older populations, yes, there's collagen changes that occur in older folks, irrespective of you know, if they've been active or inactive, it just it happens. Um, I get that the concern is there, but that has not been manifested in like actual data where, yeah, tendon rupture and stuff is way more common in older people, you know, during resistance training. Resistance training is a very, very safe sort of activity for people to participate in all comers. Like, and then the injury risk for even competitive weightlifting, okay, at the highest level is very, very low, especially compared to other sports. Um, and recreational pursuits. So I wouldn't worry about it. I think that a lot of this stuff is self-limiting if you listen to the subjective feedback, which is sort of this, this, is this emerging sort of body of evidence that subjective feedback from the lifter is very, very important in ultimately determining their injury and risk and then risk of experiencing pain. So if they say, hey, this is way heavy, you know, whatever, sure, there's a time to push people, but there's also a time to listen and understand where if they're very concerned about something, then psychologically that is going to contribute to their you know, potential pain or injury, which has a biological, psychological, and social component to it. So overall, I don't worry about, you know, if I had a person 65 years of age, never trained before, I don't worry about them rupturing a Achilles or a you know, hamstring tendon or something like that just from rebounding on the squat. I think that uh, you know, getting them to resistance train would be the most beneficial thing for them anyway. And, um, the gradual progressive overload over time is ultimately what's gonna prevent them from having one of those traumatic sort of injuries. The only time this would change is if they happen to be on a, an antibiotic or a medication that does greatly increase the risk of tendon, tendon issues. Now Austin did a two minute Tuesday on our YouTube channel, Barbell Medicine YouTube channel, uh, which you know he covers this uh, in some detail. Um, so any of the fluoroquinolones, uh, those antibiotics, also long-term steroid use, uh, and a handful of other different medications can in greatly increase the risk of tendon ruptures. Um, and you would suspect that in older people, this is even magnified by the level of detraining, the collagen changes that have already occurred. And so for those folks, then you could reasonably say, hey, we're just gonna do pause squats. Yeah. Especially if it doesn't matter, right? Like if they're like, hey, I got a meet coming up, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. But if not, but if not, Pause squats are a perfectly viable way to train to reduce that risk. This question was supposed to be fast, but I, I can't. 
the deal is that increased risk of tendon rupture in folks taking like fluoroquinolones or who previously were on long-term like steroids um, for maybe an autoimmune disease or some other condition is like six months after they stopped taking the medication. Like the risk is increased up to six months after they stopped. So this is a potentially like long period of time and we don't have good evidence base to say, you know, yeah, you do what you want, you know, don't ignore all this stuff. On the other hand, I, I can't tell you how big the risk actually is. So my thing would just be using just professional judgment, like, you know, we've got a pretty good training base. I don't see, you know, we're not really doing a bunch of other dynamic work like running, jumping, stuff like that. It's probably not a big deal. That's my take. Sorry for being long-winded. And uh, even like in the absence of tendon rupture or something catastrophic like that, just as far as sore joints or, you know, just sore soft tissues, um, in the older people that I've trained, uh, that hasn't been an issue. I have them come right back up out of the bottom of the squat, unless there's some reason not to. Uh, what's actually more important is that they are adapted to doing that. Yeah. You know, they've they've trained that they've trained that at you know a light weight, and they have become accustomed to it, and it does not make them any more sore than it would someone else. Obviously, with caveats for individual variation. Cool. Okay, so the question is about you know when to either change the dose or and versus when to change the formulation. Yeah, exactly. So like if somebody's not responding to something, uh, in general, in general, my first inclination is to change the formulation, keeping volume the same, mainly just to see if there's a a greater response there given the same level of training, right? Because my idea is to get the biggest response, the most, the maximal response I can get somebody improving whatever thing or things that we are trying to do uh, uh, out of the lowest amount of input, right? So it, I, I still wanna get the maximal response, right? But I, I don't wanna have to give you too much to get there. So if uh, I can change the formulation, change the exercise or exercises and get a good response, then I'm cool with that. I'd prefer to do that first before adding volume. And generally, if I try one or two different variations and nothing happens as far as to like getting better, um, then I increase the dose. Because I, I have, at that point, really no reason to believe that it's the formulation. I have more reason to believe it's the dose. So as far as how long, usually I'll give something two or three weeks to kind of work. And if it doesn't, or it gets worse, then I'm like, okay, maybe one more change if I have a, some suspicion. All of it is based on your kind of professional judgment though, right? And there's problems with that. But, um, you know, in the clearest example, if you had somebody who's got a bench that's not going up and they're benching four or five times a week with X amount of volume, maybe swapping two of the variations for something that you think by some plausible mechanism would help them, i.e. it's either much more specific to the lift that you're trying to get up or overloads the lift that you're trying to, or something, something to that effect, and you just change the variations to fit that, whatever your hypothesis is, and then nothing improves after you're just switching the variation, then I would think, I'm like, mm, maybe I should have just upped the dose. That's, that's my... So in that case, would you increase bench frequency or to up the dose, or would you increase just the volume? Just the volume, and I only use frequency as a tool now to change the volume. That's my big, or like that's yeah. my biggest function of frequency. So in fact, even this latest, the latest meta-analysis by Schoenfeld and a, a bunch of his buddies. So what happened, 2016, they actually looked at frequency and its effect on like training outcomes, this in particular hypertrophy. And they found that on general training twice, maybe even closer to three times a week, 
improved hypertrophy compared to once a week when volume was equated. That was 2016. The, not a lot of studies. I think they said there were seven total studies they ended up reviewing for this, and then the sample size was like 300 people. And then now, 2018 in December, they published a second meta-analysis, and there was 30-something studies and uh, close to 1,000 people, so like really improved the sample size, suggesting that the only reason why frequency matters, like times per week that you're training, is as a function of total volume. So you can use frequency to change total volume. There was a similar study, not by Schoenfeld, a different group, uh, where they looked at training frequency and strength outcomes, and it's kind of similar. Um, yes, there's individual differences, so it's like maybe you respond better to training the same volume with more frequency uh, versus another person, but in general, the volume was the biggest driver. And so I probably wouldn't just change the frequency without changing the volume in general. Uh, uh, unless... But to get that extra volume, correct. it doesn't matter whether it's more frequency or it's in... Yeah, it, 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 yeah, yeah. unless I have a reason to believe that I'm overloading somebody for a particular session. Yeah. Like that session's always ses session RP10, in which case I might just split that same volume into two different sessions so that you know we're controlling fatigue a little bit better. That'd be the only time where I would just keep the volume the same, change frequency. Otherwise, I would just up the dose. Up the dose, kids. Like just, you know. Tom, do you have more? No? No mas? I mean, I, in terms of frequency, I think there's probably benefits from a practice standpoint. Like sure, of, that was my bias you know, for sure. Once a week, once a week versus like two or three times a week. Uh, but yeah. as far as like getting stronger or making muscles bigger, Apparently the data are in. Well, yeah. for now. Yeah. And then, you know, if in five years that changes, I'll be happy to change my opinion. Yeah. It's easy to just rely on the data. You just, it's not, I'm not saying this. I also, the think, data it's, is I also think it's hard to get as much volume in in one session as you could across 100%. three or four sessions. As the Aussies say, 100%. 100%. 100%. You reckon? No dramas. No dramas, mate. The question is, is there a plan for barbell medicine coaching certification? Truthfully, no, like there's not a written plan that's there outside of, I have this Excel document titled to do. And uh, the problem is it keeps growing, like even though I cross stuff off the list. And so the, <laughs> the thing, it's funny because it's sad. Uh, the, it's, um, so the idea is to have a barbell medicine accreditation program. The idea is that you can get this in multiple levels. So for instance, you're a healthcare professional, you're an emergency med doc, we don't want you to necessarily be a coach because that's not you operating up to your level of training, right? You have the potential to be this huge social change agent in your community, in your facility, you know, at peer-to-peer -peer type, you know, uh, scenarios like other doctors, which would be huge. So we should have some barbell medicine accreditation that is tailored towards a healthcare professional. And that's not necessarily involved in like teaching the squat, programming the squat for like powerlifting related purposes. Doesn't mean you're not interested in these things. It's just like for people like you, or for people in the states who are doctors who want to know this information, they need it on a different level and an accreditation at a different level than a person who wants to be a bar barbell medicine coach. So the idea is we'd have multiple tiers. So one is like for healthcare professionals, it would be where CMEs, uh, you know, and, and basically you would be up on all of the data and all of the sort of guidelines that we're advocating for in the health, health sector. Then there'd be a barbell medicine coaching cert. The idea is you'd come to one of our seminars have participated in this, passed some sort of written exam, and then you'd have to come coach at one of these training camps so we, can, we knew that you knew how to coach. That would be the idea of how, how that works. And then the, the third line would just be barbell medicine, like participation uh, sort of certificate, like you've come to the seminar, 
He participated. Here you go. So that's the that's that's my idea. Timeline. There are things to do, man. I I, I put there are a handful of very very important things that I think, and that is one of them. The book is super important. That's important. Um, and then actually writing these guidelines. So the goal for 2019 was to have 20 different guidelines, like position stands out from barbell medicine on certain important issues. And that kind of lends itself well to also writing this book. But then the coaching development thing is also something we think is super important. I don't, I don't wanna just make a bunch of coaches and then have them come work for barbell medicine. I want them to be out in their community doing their own thing. And I, but I also want the, this coach coaching cert to be valuable. Like you're a barbell medicine certified coach. I want that to mean something. Um, and be recognizable because if it's not then what is it you know it's just a piece of paper that you know I had a crappy signature on like that's so. there's also there's also um, concerns about how it scales right? oh sure yeah well right yes yeah, so I don't know I don't know how it does yeah so we can we can put a lot of effort into minting coaches and then maintaining those coach credentials and yeah for 100 people, maybe that doesn't change the price of rice. And, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. having having just come from uh, some place that, that does that. I we've we've just we've discussed this like <laughs> it's a it's a it's a tough road. It's yeah, a tough road. Well, so that's why I like the CME like uh, an accredited yeah barbell medicine like health profession. You know, we don't, I don't want any I don't want your money. I just want to ensure that you're up on this stuff. So that way, when people are like, oh, is there a good doctor in Melbourne? Like, actually, there's two. <laughs> well, three Shams. Shams are our rheumatologists, but he stood us up today. Yeah, and it, it may be it may be more valuable to actually put out kind of uh, sorts of videos and uh, materials on what we think you know like good coaching looks like and how sure. to develop that, and that might actually have more far-reaching consequences than actually certifying coaches. But this is a point of ongoing discussion. Yep still on the Excel sheet. Would I be better off trying to split the third day of a well-structured three-day program, like split those movements and exercises across the two days I can train, or just continue a well-structured three-day program? But only do knowing, two days? Yeah, knowing no. it's gonna take longer. I'd wanna do more volume. So I'd want to do, if the, let's say there's nine exercises per week and you only literally have two separate training sessions, I would do four and a half exercises <laughs> per session yeah. or try to get all the volume in. Yeah. And the idea is if you're training for specific strength goals, then the exercises that you use should be specifically tailored to that task. And then the rep ranges should be representative of whatever you're defining as strength. So for instance, if you want to get a better 1RM on a squat bench type of press, then you better be practicing singles and your volume work is going to be probably in sets of three to six reps, right? You're not going to do singles and tens, right? Or no singles and just tens if, the one R, if you're telling me that your 1RM is super, super important. On the other hand, if this training twice per week is only transient, well, I'm just saying if it was a period of time where you only, it was like one month, two months, then maybe this isn't the time to push for strength. Yeah, so if it's a couple of years, then you're trying to figure out a way of how much training can I jam into my week? Yeah. And now if there was any way for me to get another session where even you do one exercise only, or if you train five days a week and three of those days are only one exercise only and two days are longer, I would do that yeah. over trying to jam everything in two days. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I just, I know I need a way to scale your training volume and subsequently your training fatigue up over time. And if you're constraining me, then I'm running out of options because 
really hard to up the training volume while keeping intensity at a high enough level to drive your strength gains. If you just said, I want to be jacked, mate, I say, oh, like, you know, Roger, RIP, like then, then we could compromise on the absolute intensity to get the total volume in, but you can't do that necessarily for strength. Right? If you're defining strength as a 1RM, I know that your intensity has to be such that your sessions will end up getting too long as volume gets higher. So in sum, I would pick, let's say you have four main exercises that you want to get better on. The two variations that you do you know, of your total eight total exercises on those two days are going to be very closely related. So the regular bench press, you might have close grip bench press. The regular press it might be a pin press from the shoulders. The regular deadlift, you might have a pause deadlift. You know, squat, you might have pause squat, something like that. Okay. And then I would have two priority lifts per training session. So like just your regular standard ones and then two variations of the other lifts. And that's how I would split it up. And then if there's a way for you to train one lift on another day, I would add an additional lift. So let's say one other day you could like, oh, I could bench, I could spend 20 minutes benching. Cool, do another bench variation. And most of the, how the setup would be single at eight and then some your back offs in the 70, 80% range in three to six reps. And then at, as, as over time, the volume's gonna have to creep up. That makes sense? I think so. Yeah, and you'd run like four to eight week long blocks of like adding stress in that sort of general like development range and then you would do like two or three weeks where you jack the intensity way up trend, you know singles triples that's your main thing and maybe you peak and then rinse lather repeat there you go guys there's your barbell medicine healthcare professional template it's going to be in the store pretty soon <laughs> also for those that didn't catch it he referenced roger he was talking about roger the kangaroo who was famous on the internet for being immensely jacked right <laughs> to which i was likened yep and uh unfortunately uh roger has apparently gone the way of all flesh and it's no longer with us that's right let's pour one out for yeah. yeah yeah so so i think you're the central paradigm for like what, what makes a variation more or less useful like the, your sort of thought process has to be how similar is it to the task that you're going to test Right, so let's use the deadlift as an example. If your test is a 1RM conventional deadlift, then you would try to pick variations where you have similar joint angles and therefore muscle lengths, similar movement velocities, similar contraction types, similar movement patterns overall, right? So, and then the further you get away from those things, the less you expect them to transfer over. So for instance, does a squat transfer over to the deadlift? And you're like, I mean, a little, you know, because you're still lifting weights, it's lower body dominant, you have to brace your trunk, okay. The joint angles aren't terribly dissimilar, but the, the uh, contraction types are different. The joint angles are somewhat different. So there's not a great transfer, especially compared from like a two count pause deadlift to a regular deadlift, right? So I think that you would predict that something like a two count pause deadlift, a two inch deficit deadlift, a deadlift plus chains, deadlift against bands or whatever, all of those things would transfer much, much better to a deadlift, right? Than something like a leg press or front squat or uh, step ups or split squats. Does that make sense? How to determine whether a deficit deadlift is better than a pause deadlift, it's better than a deadlift against bands can only be determined retrospectively. 
meaning you've tried it for some period of time and you're reasonably sure that there's no other reason why your results improved or got worse. In which case you kind of figured out, hey, I, I like this particular variation. I seem to have a above average response as far as I can tell to this one compared to a below average response to this other one. And so you can only tell that retrospectively after the program's already been done. So the idea is you have a lot of training history built up over a long period of time and you can say, all right, now I'm gonna really try to push my deadlift up and you can play your greatest hits, you know, because you already know how the playlist should go. Yeah. Doesn't it sometimes become difficult to identify what was the driving factor? 100%, doing as the Aussies would say. Yeah. But there's a lot of noise, yeah. for sure. I also think you can uh, approach it from uh, a technique perspective as well. If somebody is struggling with something, uh, like one of the variants may be useful for them to polish something that they're struggling with. Yeah, to make them more efficient, sure. Yeah, yeah. But I think the other thing that you'd have to really make sure, again, this is back to your question, is are you changing the formulation, just the exercise, or are you also gonna, at the same time, alter the volume? So again, my go-to would be try the variation, like you're changing the formula, and then if that's if you don't if you can't discern a you know significant increase that you cannot uh, otherwise ascribe to any other thing, right? Then you say, wow, maybe I'll just keep this variation the same and add up the dose, and then ideally you would then see a response. If not, then I would change the variation again, see if that worked, and if that didn't work, then I'd probably up the dose again before. And this is assumes that every step of the way that I'm saying. Is something tragically, you know, or horrifically wrong going on otherwise? Like, did somebody die? Did I get, you know, a lot of environmental stress from like my interpersonal relationships? Like, am I losing a ton of weight rapidly? Am I, do I have cancer? Like, this is what happens regularly, like when my lifts go down for a period of time. The first thing I think, like, do I have cancer? And I'm like, you know. That's reasonable. Well, because I, that's the only reasonable, yeah, rational sort of. 100%. So, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my thought process is like at every step of the way, like eliminating anything else that could be confounding my results and then changing the variation and then changing the dose in that sort of. That doesn't mean that n never in my history of coaching have I ever like, oh, I'm gonna change the variation and increase the volume. It's just kind of what is your interpretation of what's happening, right? I also think there's uh, like a psychological benefit to incorporating oh, sure. the variants. And in that regard, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. If somebody has been doing the same thing for a while, actually just the fact that you're giving them something different to do can be like very useful psychologically and that helps with compliance and it makes them enjoy training more. Sure. And despite what you may have heard, having fun is okay when you train. Yeah, yeah. and this is for strength application too. Yeah. I would say that for hypertrophy purposes, I'm more concerned about total fatigue that's induced. So for instance, I know that the biggest drivers of hypertrophy are motor unit recruitment times total volume of reps where motor, good amount of motor unit recruitment is occurring, right? So I know that even, and volume's even more important there. Volume has to go up. That's the main driver there. Some exercise variations are more fatiguing than other exercise variations while still providing the same training stimulus to those muscle groups. So let's consider legs. You come to me, you say, Jordan, I just want big jacked legs. I don't care about my upper body. I want to look like a centaur. You know, like, <laughs> how, do, how, do, how do I do this? And so I, I know that I want to increase your training volume as far as the stimulus that's applied to your legs, but I don't know if that should all be squats. So for instance, I might have you do leg press or belt squats or split squats, or step ups, or lunges, things that are lower fatigue, right, just by the nature of that type of exercise, 
but allows you to get more volume in. Does that make that kind of make sense? So that's a different consideration you would make outside of just strength. Yeah. Especially lower fatigue in the context of like your back and your trunk. Hundred percent. Gosh. When I go back to the States, they're going to mistake me mistake me for like a pure-blooded Australian. That's right. Yeah. That's right. With our seminar, we wanted to look at what are the most common questions people have about training with any sort of medical condition. That's high blood pressure, diabetes, low testosterone, low back pain. We wanted to address all of these things in a systematic way. Barbell Medicine is a company that works with people from all walks of life. We work with athletes, we work with general population, we work with people in the medical field, and people who are totally new to all of it. So, biggest takeaway was definitely the, uh, the pain management lecture. There's a lot of bad information out there and I'm glad I did this because I learned more things than I had any idea on. We have some people who come to our seminars that have never touched a barbell before, and we teach them how to lift for the very first time on the seminar platform, which is pretty cool too. Uh, we take an approach where we educate people about these conditions from a biological standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, and then also the social determinants that can influence people's health and disease outcomes. Our idea is to make the community a better place through these social change agents. You go through our seminar, you learn a lot, you get to go spread that into your community, and we're trying to make the world a better place. Oh, uh, so what are some reliable like symptoms that you should be looking out for where you require physician evaluation versus just continued activity? In the context, specifically in the back. Yeah, but I, I get... In his case. Sure, I guess the over, my overarching thing is that it's not possible for me to give you a general set of guidelines on things that will 100% of the time not require or, be, or benefit from a physician sort of workup or evaluation. It, I assume like paralysis is probably. Yeah, paralysis is generally bad, you know, acute traumas where you, you know, have lost, you know, some sort of sensory and motor control. It's just ultimately why cauda equina syndrome is bad because you actually have part of the disc compressing on your spine, uh, spinal cord and the nerve, the nerve output is comp compromised and that can be problematic, uh, which is why it's usually a surgical emergency. The, the deal is, I don't know if I could give you the tools to evaluate that reliably, meaning that I could say, sure, hey, look, if you have a person who's got, you know, sensory nerve loss and a dermatomal distribution that goes, you know, below the ankle and it's repeatable and doesn't move and it's been there for a certain period of time and now they also have reliable motor dysfunction, they should probably be evaluated. And you're like, well, how do I test for all of that? And I'm like, okay, so we're gonna have to get you into medical school. You gotta have to, you know, learn these exams. So I, I don't have, I think, a reliable thing there. I, I think that said, that physician evaluation is useful when there is concern that there is serious, a serious injury. And that's gonna look different for a lot of people. That being said, considering the psychological and sort of social learning aspect of pain in general, that I think if, you're really worried about something, 
right? And I'm not your doctor friend. I'm just your bro friend. And you're like, I'm really worried that I have something that's very wrong with me right now. There's nothing for me to say. Yeah, well, I went to the seminar this weekend. This guy said, uh, here are the tools, and now I'm using them on you. You know, I, th- I think that if you're really worried about it, you need to be evaluated. And I think most people have this, their own internal sort of like regulation where it's like, yeah, if uh, I notice this right now, but if it's not there in like an hour, then I'm going to, I feel good, you know? Um, that being said, that's probably not sensitive enough either, you know, because some people, you'll miss things. <sighs> so I don't have a good answer for you. Um, it, from my standpoint, you have somebody who had an acute trauma uh, to, to their back and now they have lost bowel and bladder function like they need to go to the emergency room immediately yeah that seems like an obvious symptom well you probably shouldn't ignore yeah but you know if somebody's got oh i feel nerve you know i they say i have sharp nerve pain down into my butt well it's a great question <laughs> could be you know uh some sort of uh, acute issue that may benefit from physician evaluation, but that's not not reliably, you know. It doesn't mean it's not worrisome either. So my general my general thought here is uh, approach most things conservatively, out, unless you are very worried about it. In which case, seek evaluation from a doctor, a medical professional, a medical doctor. Not a, don't go to see a chiropractor. <laughs> Not to say the chiropractors are bad. I'm just saying that th- that this is not their area of expertise. All right. Same thing. You don't you don't go right straight away to a physical therapist. You go to the doctor first. And if you're a candidate for conservative management, they will refer you appropriately most of the time. Right. As in a GP. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So people want to like bypass that. They're like, well, they're just going to recommend for PT. And it's like, well, there are things that need to be evaluated prior to that recommendation. And I think most GPs do a good job um, getting people to the right level of care provider. But my, def- my default sort of assumption is that everybody's fine. Yeah, until proven otherwise. Everybody's fine until proven otherwise. And then, you, you know, this sort of internal, like, worry level, I think, helps determine, like, oh, I need to go see a doctor. So here's an example. This girl, I know, uh, she was doing toes to bar from a, a CrossFit rig, right? It's probably, I don't know how many meters this is, so forgive me, probably like she was probably 10 feet in the air, and she fell. Yeah, right onto her butt. Although her, her arms may have been at 10 feet. Or actually, it was probably less than that. I don't know. It's high. It's still Yeah, so she fell right on her tailbone, right? Like in. So, and now 15 people rush her, like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Like somebody's WebMD and like, oh my gosh, you probably have a fractured disc and you tore your annulet. Like they're, you know, going through all these things like, can you move your toes? Can you, you know, right? And so I get a phone call about this and I'm not at the gym and I was like, well, can she walk? You know, and she wouldn't walk, couldn't walk. She's told, I was like, honestly, if you can't get up and walk, right, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, I'm, you're gonna have to go to the emergency room because I'm afraid something bad just happened to you. And she, she wouldn't do it. So she went to the emergency room, got an x-ray, nothing wrong with the x-ray, no fractures, no dislocations, no anything at all, right? And she was laying completely horizontal. And then a few hours later, she got up, walked out of the hospital. Miracle. Miracle. <laughs> well, I prayed, you know, I did power, did it. power of prayer. Um, but her experience, up until that point was very real. She was so worried and freaked out that her pain experience was so intense um, that she could not you know, uh, get herself to walk. And so in that scenario, 
Yeah, even if I would have been there and evaluated and be like, oh wow, you have your two point discrimination is you know intact and your motor strength is intact and all your reflexes are normal, blah blah blah, you're fine, you know. That I don't know if that would have changed the recommendation whether or not to seek care. So I don't know if there's something I could convey to a non-trained person. Yep, obvious deformity or change in function would be you know this broad sort of thing, right? So you have bone sticking out. Right, well, or your shoulder needs to be reduced, right, because it's dislocated, or like change in function, you can no longer walk, you're missing substantial ranges of motion, you're, you know, severe, strength is severely limited. Those would all be reasons to seek care, but. And I, I can say that the more you hurt yourself, uh, the better you get at figuring out what's <laughs> actually important. Like, seriously, the first time you hurt your back, you think the world is coming to an end, and then, you know, after it happens a couple more times, you are far more confident in, like, what you have experienced. Uh, yeah. And also keeping in mind that generally the things you will do with a barbell uh, are not the equivalent of falling from a great height onto your tailbone. Uh, yep. This is not to say you can't hurt yourself badly, uh, but, you know, most of the time you're probably going to be fine. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go to a doctor, sure. but like we're, we're pretty resilient and backs do hurt. Uh, Sometimes, yeah. like REM said, yeah, everybody, everybody hurts. hurts. <laughs> the 2014 paper in the American Journal of Sports Medicine by Timka et al. describes an injury as anything that with the severe deformity or a reduced uh, reduction in function. So yeah, compound fracture and, or you know, loss of bowel bladder function or something like that, or would all qualify, but you know, because it's not specific enough as far as like how much reduction in function, then like DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, would technically be an injury, you know, because you have reduced function. So we don't have, there's, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have this nice algorithm chart. Maybe that should be our next position stand, barbell medicine position stand on like formal evaluation. <laughs> they put it up in every gym, you know, and it's just two smug doctors sitting there like this. You think that'll sell well? Yeah, and yeah. just the, the flow chart will always like. Flow chart will always work. We'll, we'll always go towards like, train. train. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you, but did you die? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, train. Yeah, so the question on getting more women to train, I mean, I don't have, obviously have any experience being a woman in the gym. I thought that, you know, it'd be a cool like, you know, social experiment, but the, but the deal, here's what I do know. I know that there are unequal opportunities for women to engage in sports of all kind all across the world as a whole. Now, in some countries, this is becoming more and more accessible, but other countries, well, in most countries, still the social stigma and social attitudes towards women in sport in general is still a barrier that needs to be overcome. This is magnified in strength sports barbell sports in particular, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting. CrossFit, for its, you know, for anything else you wanna say about it, has done a lot to normalize this and also open the conversation to women training uh, you know, in very productive ways. So I, you know, hats off to them. How do we continue to make this a more normal experience and decrease social pressures that women have to overcome? I think it is, there's, mul there's multiple things. Thing one, more women need to be strength coaches, more women in coaching, period, right? And I think by making it possible to be more successful in this industry, that attracts more intelligent women to that. So right now, if you're a woman uh, in strength and conditioning, 
you have a handful of options, right? Option one is to uh, not be, a, uh, you've trained people for a little bit, you've had some success yourself, right? And you're like, uh, okay, what's my next move? So you can market yourself as uh, based off your aesthetics, right? Or your previous performance, okay? Or, or you can quit and find another job, okay? Because the, uh, there is the other option to, to become a subject matter expert and not worry about that stuff has not yet been rewarded with this outpouring of cash from the market. So effectively, the women in strength right now, women in sport right now who are killing it from a financial standpoint and thus, you know, achieving great, uh, greatly in the, in, the, in, the, in the field are those who are either marketing their aesthetic, like sort of value or their own personal performance, not like, look at my coaching skills or look at my knowledge base, you know, that's just in general. So if you make it, if you, if you give people the tools to succeed in the market as subject matter experts, as better coaches, I think you attract more women to stay in coaching for a long period of time, um, which makes for more women coaches, which attracts more women. So that, that works too. Two, two is leveraging the current women who are participating in strength sports as like community outreach sort of thing. Like how many friends do you have that don't train with barbells that are women? Well, that sounds like an opportunity to me. But, uh, it's like bring your friend to bring your friend to work day. You know, like bring your. Friend. It's, it's when people say, oh, "How do you get those arms? I want those arms." Like, well, I do this many chin-ups, I do this many push-ups, and they're like, "Oh, too hard." Sure, too sure, hard. but it's not. This is not an accident. You didn't wake up one day on accident and say, "Boop! Wow, I got jacked," on accident, right? So, so just as it is silly to say. So it, you know, it's universally regarded as silly for women to say, or for a woman to say, I don't want to get too big. All the guys, ha, 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 yeah, it's, if it was that easy, you know, like we'd all be jacked, right? Well, some women are going to put on muscle a lot faster than other women, and I want those women to identify themselves so that I can coach them and we can go do amazing things. <laughs> if they want to, of course. I would never force anybody to do anything. Uh, but she, but if, if, a, if a woman is of that, like sort of genetic predisposition and doesn't want to get big and jacked, well, they'll have to do other things. That's fine. Most women, you're right, aren't going to get, wake up with arms like you. It's too hard and the, the gain's too slow. You know, people, they just want to go, like, run around the circuit for 45 sure. minutes and get sweaty. But, but I would do that with barbells, you know? And, and I, I, think, I think if you had, like, so the, again, these, uh, uh, these group X classes that are like, um, you know, Barry's Boot Camp or whatever, or... Uh, um, you know, whatever similar type of thing. They would be great if they just included more resistance training as sort of like this pathway towards getting in and doing this stuff. But if you told me that, you know, the, the percentage of women training with weights was gonna go up by a factor, you know, of five, but they'd only be doing circuits, I'd accept that. I don't think everybody needs to be a power lifter. What? Well. I, di I disagree. So, like, for instance, are great. yeah, yeah. It's a that is a really, really good Especially if you're a coach. So, one of the one of the best ways to make a living, yeah, one of the best ways to make a living as a strength coach is to do group X classes. You have, you know, eight people on two different racks, and there are three different racks, and you're you're all squatting, and then you're all pressing, and then doing something else. Um, yeah. So, I, I think I run I run a, a class and have for many years, and have gotten some strong women out of it. Yeah, uh, so getting more women coaches would be super useful. 
making this more accessible via social outreach, via people that are already doing this, right? And then I think you just have to do this huge public campaign. But I think that public campaign doesn't need to be limited to just women. We need more guys training too. We need, everybody needs to train more. And right now, you know, you guys had the slip, slop, slap thing down here. Well, how about like, you know, uh, squat, uh, bench, you know, pole. Yeah, something like that, right? It, you can use the same like slap, buzzer snort, thing. S- slap, snort, squat. Yeah, I don't know, something, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, something like that or like put games in there. I don't know. Well, what I'm getting at is that I, I think that you're gonna, you would see a better response if you have this big public like education effort. I mean, most people don't, don't hit their minimum resistance training requirements in, in, a, given, uh, in a given week. That, that's all comers, so it'd be nice to get people on board, like, here are the exact recommendations, here's what you should be doing. Uh, let's really push people to get involved in resistance training. And to the extent that some small percentage of them are gonna end up in this gym training, like, that's cool. Anything else? To come back to your uh, thing about, like, it doesn't work in groups, I think that probably one of the most powerful motivators for people to get involved in exercise and stay involved in exercise is actually the social component of it. Oh yeah, 100%. Obviously how you structure it and how you make it work from a time perspective is the trick, but actually it's something that does work well in groups and people enjoy it and they enjoy the social interaction of it and uh, especially in the service of getting more women involved, like having a group of women training and getting strong together I think is a powerful motivator. Uh, so the question's about structuring resistance training in the context of somebody who wants to get better at in, their endurance performance. Uh, so if you only have 45 minutes to an hour, I mean, at this point, you could do all three lifts both times. Like, you, and you, well, you could squat, press, deadlift on one day, and then you could squat, bench press, and do a, some sort of deadlift on the other day, which is what I would do initially until you got further along, in which case you probably wouldn't be able to do three full lifts per time, in which case it'd be like a squat, press, and then uh, like squat and press, and then some sort of like pulling variation, like a Romanian deadlift. It's just, it doesn't take you quite as long to do as a regular deadlift. And then the other day I would deadlift bench and do some sort of squatting variation, like a pause squat or front squat or something. It, you'd have a squat, a press, and a pull each time. And I would still do, in set uh, reps would be like three to six reps, would be most of your working sets, and then volume, so total number of reps times sets has to go up over time. Um, the idea is that you're trying to approach a specific goal, which is endurance performance at some benchmark, let's say it's a 10K or whatever. On one side of the funnel is, are things that are faster and heavier, faster, more intense, more anaerobic, right? On the other side are things that are slower and more aerobic, and they all kind of come down to this funnel. So at the point of the funnel is the 10K, and then on the more aerobic side would be like a 12K, even more, it would be a 15K, and then a marathon's like way out here, right? And then on this side, the more anaerobic side, you'd have like a 5K, and then like a one mile, or you know, 1600 meter, and then you'd have like weightlifting way down here, the most anaerobic things that you can do. So I think you could actually get a significant benefit out of twice weekly, 45 minutes of that very, very anaerobic thing. You just probably don't need to spend more time doing other anaerobic things to get better at your endurance event. Rather, it's just gonna be more aerobic type stuff. Does that kind of make sense? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade more running time for more resistance training time to get better at running. Yes. If, if you wanted to get better at doing other stuff that's not running, then that, you know, my risk 
benefit or my sort of analysis of this might change. But I think you could get a big benefit out of twice weekly resistance training as long as you keep it like pretty anaerobic. So pretty heavy. I wouldn't just, oh, now we're gonna do sets of 10. You don't need to do that. You're already doing a ton of other, you know, conditioning related stuff. Um, I would stick, you know, pretty heavy relative to your ability and increase the volume over time. And then at some point you're gonna be like, you know what, running is boring. And I just wanna lift heavy weights. And then Damien's gonna send me an email. He's like, it finally happened. How do we get her super strong? Let's go. I've seen it happen, you know, once. But uh, maybe that does happen. But I, I think as long as your emphasis is on endurance stuff, then basically you're just using this as a supplemental sort of training to get better. And twice weekly, 45 minutes to an hour seems reasonable. So don't get distracted and start doing weird stuff. Like you don't need to do a lot of body weight exercise. You're already doing a substantial amount of body weight locomotion in your other training. You need to do weight bearing, you know, high threshold motor unit stuff that is very economical from a training standpoint because you're only going to do it twice a week. So again, most of the stuff should be a squat, a press, a pull, whichever variation you pick of those can't really go wrong. Um, power clean? I wouldn't do a power clean. And here's why. So power clean is an Olympic, uh, vari uh, the clean and jerk. It's a variation of the clean portion of the Olympic lift, the clean and jerk. Um, it's velocity of contraction is not specific to anything that you'd ever, you're wanting to do. It's very fast contraction. And since you're not a sprinter, it's not for you. Yeah. And yeah. what's, what's your kind of, uh, when you're doing distance running, like what kind of distances are we talking about? So 10 to 15 Ks. Gosh, I, look at me, man. You're pretty good. Yeah. yeah. As, oh my. as somebody who uh, was formerly a distance runner, uh, uh, one of the things you said was that you're, you're doing your lifting to increase your endurance. For the most part, especially uh, in kind of like day-to-day -day running, uh, your endurance is probably not really limited by strength. Uh, there's, there are caveats to that. Uh, but where you will find some strength training to help are things within the run that require more force production, like running up a hill. Sure. When, I, when I started to lift weights as a runner, I actually noticed a big difference in climbing hills. But I was still, as Jordan suggested, like you want to continue to run while you do this uh, and have the lifting be an adjunct to that instead of being like, I'm going to cease running and you know, do lifting and my and 10K time is going to improve, that does not happen. No, yeah. and if you think about like just the anaerobic and aerobic components to your particular event, the overall demands are much higher aerobically, right? So you're literally aerobically producing force over and over and over and over again. You're cycling between higher threshold motor units and lower threshold motor units while you're running. The higher threshold motor units are active for like a short period of time while your lower threshold motor units are recovering, right? Now that happens somewhat infrequently, but depending on the length of time, it happens more and more often. If you were to stop running and only do resistance training, you would become fatigued faster. The idea with resistance training is to improve your ability to produce force at like the highest level, but that has to be kind of combined with your ability you produce force repeatedly for a long period of time. So that's why it's so important to continue your endurance event. I don't think there's any endurance athlete where I would say stop practicing your sport or stop maintaining your endurance adaptations, just lift weights, unless they were quitting 
which you'll quit in the next few years so that you can, yeah, be a fellow. Yeah, I probably just, you know, again, general, I probably wouldn't have a 10K if that was their event. I probably wouldn't have them do a bunch of 400s in the beginning, like to begin with. Maybe their 1K repeats or something like that. Most of the interval work would be aerobic type intervals. They wouldn't do a lot of like, in general, spend a ton of time on high force production anaerobic stuff. And so I would just probably make that mostly lifting. Sure. Yeah, so, so the question, how, how can you lose muscle or lose fat mass and gain lean body mass at the same time? So generally what you'll see is people who are untrained and or very overweight, very obese, in general they will build muscle tissue, so sarcoplasmic and myofibrillar hypertrophy, sarcoplasmic being non-contractile muscle proteins, myofibrillar hypertrophy being contractile muscle proteins, do not happen in isolation. They always happen together 100% of the time. There's never, they're never separated. Yeah. So, in general though, people who are very untrained and or overweight or obese, when they initiate resistance training, they've, never, they've not trained before, will gain lean body mass and lose adipose tissue, lose body fat, usually by maintaining their body weight. It's usually how that goes. Yeah. Okay. The more trained you become, the less likely that scenario plays out, meaning that it's less likely for you to gain a significant amount of lean body mass whilst losing a substantial amount of body fat. Whilst. Yeah. And so in fact, most of the data on this suggests if you're losing weight that for every one, whatever, uh, mass unit you want to use, so kilos in this standpoint. Yeah. So then you, 75% of that would be fat mass. 25% of that would be non-fat mass. Water, glycogen, visceral tissue, like all sorts, anything that's not fat. Okay. And if they're, and if they're losing fat, like... We know that that can't be at the same time as they're building muscle, right? Unless, unless they're untrained. So they can be catabolic and like literally at the same minute. So well, so catabolic and anabolic, uh, that's, those are just general terms to describe what's going on. And well, they're general terms describing the state of metabolism, which varies on tissue specific level, yeah. right? So you can be anabolic on some tissues and catabolic in another tissue. You can be you know, yeah. have anabolic and catabolic processes going on in the same tissue, which is occurring 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you can never be free from that's one of these I processes. Under, I sure, yeah. You couldn't be both but the net yeah. thing that's happening at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, is what where you're going to see whatever progress or lack thereof occurring. So if at the end of a month you have lost, you know, 10 kilos, you well, your net state has been catabolic at the level of the body fat you it's likely also unless you were untrained or very obese to start with that you've lost muscle tissue meaning that some catabolism has occurred at the level of the muscle tissue too okay that's what's happening uh as far as why is it different in people who are untrained and obese as far as they can like gain lean body mass and lose fat mass at the same time a lot of that has to do with being untrained some other processes are due to increased sensitivity to muscle protein synthesis responses, meaning that the correction of obesity tends to improve their sensitivity to anabolic stimuli, dietary and resistance training. <coughs> um, but yeah, uh, people with very favorable genetics seem to be able to do this a little bit better than other folks. We call this a P ratio, basically how much nutrition uh, gets diverted into building muscle versus storage as energy as fat tissue. And if you have really favorable genetics and you're training, then maybe you can gain muscle mass whilst <coughs> losing body fat.
but it's not the normal situation, particularly for trained folks. So if you've been training for a while and you want to gain more muscle mass, you're probably going to have to gain weight. Yeah, so actually, actually a study in New England Journal of Medicine, 1996, uh, I think Basir, Basar was the head author on this. They took 40 guys, 19 to 40, okay, who had trained a little bit before, not a lot. They, they, they were not classified as trained, but they've had experience with resistance training. Split them up into four groups. Group one got 600 milligrams of testosterone per week, but didn't exercise. 600 milligrams is about three times the TRT dose. Okay, so this is like high dose anabolic steroids. But they didn't get to exercise. The other group, 600 milligrams testosterone plus resistance training. They were doing basically heavy, heavy light medium, four sets of six on squat, bench, and some sort of pull three times a week. All right. The other group, no steroids, no exercise. All right. The other group got no steroids. They thought it was placebo. They thought they were getting juice all right, and got to train. They followed these up for 10 weeks. They were all instructed to eat a very high protein diet. Okay. The people at 10 weeks after taking three times the normal TRT dose, so on a bunch of juice, all right, gained six kilos of lean body mass. In how many weeks? 10 weeks. Six kilos. <clears throat> the people not on on anabolic steroids, but who were still training, gained two and a half kilos. All right, and the people who were taking anabolic steroids but weren't training gained about two and a half kilos. Yeah. So that's two and a half kilos over ten weeks. Ten weeks. Which to our friends in the U.S. comes out to about five pounds. Uh, so about half a pound a week. Yeah. Of muscle tissue. Yeah. If you're on per week. Yeah. Well, if you're training, that's if you're training. Wasn't that the steroid? Yes, or you're on a bunch of drugs and not training. Yeah. Yes. That's if, just as good to be training or take steroids. Again. That's the take home <laughs> message. But if you're on anabolic steroids and you're training, right? So let's say that that's a reasonable amount of weight gain in a normal population. So if we say six, you know, six kilograms in 10 weeks. So if, I'm, if you're asking me how much weight can you gain in a given period of time without a bunch of it being fat, I don't know if I could recommend you to gain more than that. If I told you to gain six kilos in three months, I know that you'd gain a substantial amount of body fat, mm -hmm. unless you were on like a ton of drugs, right? So I could only gain, you know, tell you to gain a kilo or two a month if I wanted to increase your lean body mass without a substantial amount of it being body fat. So if some people are using 600 milligrams, like a ton of drugs and they're resistance training and they only gain six, six kilos in 10 weeks, I don't expect somebody who's not on drugs and resistance training to gain more than them. Or it'd be easy to do it very quickly, right? Like do it too fast. Yeah. I just don't expect people to gain as much lean body mass as what has been reported by the internet. You know, like, yeah, you're gonna put on 10 pounds, 10 weeks, 10 kilos in 10 weeks, 25 kilos of lean body mass in three months. Not possible. Whey protein, people kept asking us, which protein should I take? What do you recommend? And when we looked into it, we didn't really feel comfortable recommending any protein. So we just made our own. It's only got four ingredients. The essential amino acid and BCA contents are very high. This is exactly what you want out of a whey protein. So I will, I will preface this by saying that uh, I have changed my mind in certain regards with respect to programming. I will also say that with the right person and with the right management, the Texas method can be 
uh, a successful program. I have used it successfully on people. However, I no longer use the Texas method with anyone. Uh, I don't use the four-day version of the Texas method, which I view to be an inferior version of the Texas method for the most part because it only has you squatting twice per week. Uh, and I no longer use the three-day Texas method with anyone. Uh, and this is after having used it with a lot of people. I will also say that there is no one perfect program for all people and that various people respond differently. That you have uh, actually seen some progress with the Texas method is cool. Uh, I would say that I would, no, I would no longer advocate for a strict volume intensity split uh, and instead I would incorporate both throughout the week going for higher volumes over time. Uh, like I would actually not, I don't think that the Texas method as written winds up providing you uh, enough volume throughout the week and I think that the intensity winds up drifting up too high so that you encounter a lot of fatigue uh, and it's very hard, but you actually are not getting uh, a really useful stimulus to continue to drive progress. I think the Texas method also tends to uh, be psychologically exhausting for people uh, insofar as it's like you're just constantly going after something heavy. Uh, and I've had, I've had pretty high responders that did the Texas method that when I took them off of that, not only improved more, uh, they also reported back how much more they enjoyed their training. Like they sure. didn't realize how psychologically stressful it was to actually have to, you know, your volume day is hard, your intensity day is hard, and then in the middle of the week, you kind of got this throwaway workout that you're still feeling not that great for. I think you wind up actually uh, not getting enough squat reps or really any reps uh, through the week to really develop proficiency and to develop, develop work capacity. And I think that something where you touch something heavy once or twice a week and then you fill a bunch of the rest of the week in with kind of medium hard volume winds up providing a better training outcome over time. Uh, so that like if, if your workout on a given day is really crushing uh, and you're doing that over and over again, like two out of three times a week, your workout's like Ermagerd level of uh, in intensity. I think that that can work for a while, but I do think it tends to be psychologically exhausting and you accumulate a bunch of fatigue. And I would actually argue for the idea that a five by five must destroy you, I think is not correct. I think you could do five by five three times a week if you wanted to at, the, at a given weight, and that might even be a better option. Not that I'm, not that I'm saying, oh, just go out and do five by fives. Uh, but the more you squat, the better you get at squatting. I think that uh, if s driving strength is the goal, you need to, you need to handle heavy weights. And I'm, I've actually become a much bigger fan of singles at something in the vicinity of RPE8. Like, like, like dating single? <laughs> uh, like, because a single is, a heavy single is very specific to driving up top end strength. And it is also not fatiguing in the same way a 5RM is. Uh, and what if, you're, what if you do one or two singles a week and then you backfill it with a bunch of medium hard volume? Like, well, now you've squatted a bunch more. We know that Hypertrophy is very much a function of volume. We know that uh, 
actually producing strength is correlated with muscle cross-sectional area. So you're not only getting the practice of doing something heavy, okay? So you're, you're working up to your single and you're doing that once or, once or twice a week or whatever the, the heavy thing is. But then you are also getting a whole bunch of sub-maximal medium hard practice so that you are developing work capacity, you're building muscle cross-sectional area, and here is the best part, and this is where it almost feels like you're getting something for nothing when you're coming from like a Texas Method mindset to something else, like you're not dreading the workouts, it's not crushing you, you are not essentially accumulating a bunch of unnecessary fatigue that then results in you needing to deload uh, and then back up again. Um, I think that for a lot of people, and I've had, I've had successes with the Texas method, I've had failures with the Texas method, and I think the reason it tends to fail is that those people actually needed more volume uh, sure. more and that winds up driving it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, people, I've heard people say, yeah, we ran your program before and it didn't work. I wouldn't say it didn't work, yeah. I just... Yeah. Well, yeah, so, and then they're, like, they're looking at me like, explain yourself. <laughs> And so, I mean, I expect if I, if I give any program to a thousand people, I expect about 14, 15% of them to over respond, like, holy crap, you just responded better than we, you know, anybody else previously. And I expect about the same amount of people to get worse. And then everybody else is going to be somewhere in the middle, like you got a little bit better versus a lot better. It's a non-responder rate, generally quoted in the literature, somewhere between seven and 15% non-responders. And, you know, yeah, right. Then they need a refund. Then you refund. So someone says, "Oh, this works every time. All every time it's applied." Oh, that's not true. But another thing I see is that people will like run like our twelve-week strength or twelve-week press program, having not necessarily been prepared for it by having a lot of training under their belt. And so they'll run it and have maybe okay results, right? And then they'll run something after that and just off to the races and it's like, well, we built, we just built a ton of work capacity in our program, a ton of training tolerance and yet a ton of practice at all this other stuff. And then when you, you go to another program that's maybe lower volume, high, a little higher intensity, less variation, it's almost like a peaking thing tacked on to the end. It's the same mistake I made when I, I ran a Shaco like thing a long time. It was like ton of volume or whatever. And then I ran five, three, one after it. And I, on five, three, one, I just crushed. I was like, this is the best program ever. Jim Wendler is a genius. And then, but then I kept running it and it, it stopped working and there was less and it got like worse. And I was like, and I had to like reconcile this. I'm like, but, but I love this program. It's like, I've never been this strong, but I had to kind of look, look a little more macro to see, all right, well, in the general sense, things like, when, when was I accumulating volume? When was I developing a lot of the strength versus when was I able to express it? So that being said, like you like the elements of this four day thing and you're crushing it, dude, I would absolutely not change it. I would ride this until the very bitter end. And then, but when you're looking back retrospectively on things that worked, things that didn't work, things you liked, things you didn't like, really go back further than you think you need to. Go back you know, four months, five months, six months, and sort of see if you can plot, like, in general, here's when I was developing a lot of this strength, this training stress, versus, and then here is where I was realizing a lot of it. And if you see some general patterns, that's how I think you should structure your next thing. And, and then the final thing I'll say is, like, I prefer to work at lower intensities myself. So most of my, like, squat and deadlift work, I'd like to do at, like, 70%, which is, like, pretty low on the spectrum. And Austin does, he likes his a little higher, closer to 80%. So there's a spectrum in there. We both do singles or whatever, but he's a little more high intensity stuff. And he likes, you know, if I have on a supplemental lifts, working up to a four at nine or three at nine, which is like pretty heavy, 
he loves that, but I want to be at like four at eight, three at eight, or lower and do yeah, and do a little more. Fun. Yeah, as far as her performance as a single. Sure. So I think if your goal is to get better at three RMs, you're gonna have to do heavy triples too, you know. But if it's like I want to get better at expressing a one RM, I think singles at eight with some other high intensity work is gonna be fine. How I structure that for myself is single at eight, a lot of volume work on the main lifts, and then on my supplemental lifts, I'll do those up three at nine, four at nine, four at eight, something like that. Still reasonably heavy for rep work, but not as much volume as I did on the regular lift. Austin, on the other hand, would be single at eight, rep work at like 77 to 80% maybe, you know, and then on his supplemental lifts would be three at nine, four at nine for sure all That's the time. What I yeah, which is fine. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily go against. Yeah, yeah. It's more of. It's more of a. This particular permutation is more applicable to you, the individual, which is determined retrospectively. Yeah. You can only do this by looking back. Yeah, that's I right. couldn't predict. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so you are against five-three-one now. I don't know if I'm against any particular program. I just any program that doesn't like fit our current training paradigm. I view as like a suboptimal. Would you Would you say that? I wrote an article, I did write an article on this called Into the Great Wide Open, yeah, and, and I would. And you could, you could reasonably get from that that Jordan does not recommend 5-3-1. I do not recommend 5-3-1. If you're in, a, in that stage where you are ready to push PBs, like, yeah, I would, I would prefer a peaking template still, or something like that. Still not advisable? I would not run 5-3-1 if I had another option. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the running joke on the internet is like, would you rather? It's like some terrible training program, or five three one, and I'm like that other terrible thing. Like, yeah. my favorite question you got was how deep in ketosis should you be when running five three one? Yeah, the, yeah, like you should be yeah ketoacidosis, so that way you'll expire soon and the pain ends. <laughs> like just, I don't dislike people would say this like I don't like dislike Jim Wendler. I don't think he's, you know, a dumb person. I think that he's trying to help people get strong and that's admirable and we're all in the same boat. I just don't like his programming. It doesn't make sense to me based on what we know about strength conditioning. It's the same thing with RIP, you know? Like, I, I'm pumped that people want to get other people training in the gym and get strong or whatever. It's just that your training, your training tenants do not comport with the existing evidence and therefore I must reject them. This doesn't have to be personal. So the questions are for older folks on LP and then just at LP runners at large, would you ever try to overcome the plateau by reducing volume of warm-ups? I actually, if anything, I would do the opposite. I would increase the volume of the warm-ups. So, what about the intensity? Yeah, so, well, so the intensity of the warm-ups are predetermined by the weights that you're trying to work up to, right? So you wouldn't necessarily, if you were trying to work up to 100 kilos on the squat, you wouldn't necessarily want your last warm-up to be anything less than like 90 or 87.5. You wouldn't want to make that big jump. And in fact, I like 5% jumps if I had to pick, right? So my last warm-up for you, you know, would be uh, 95 kilos or 92.5. And I'd have you do that if you were doing sets of five. I'd have you do it for sets of five all the way up if you've been running LP for a long time. So how long have you been training for? So there's no way you're a novice. You shouldn't be on LP. Yeah, I like you, Peter. You're a good dude, you're a good lifter, you're a funny bloke. So, but the deal is this, so the novice progression works for like three months, right? You can stretch that out for another few months if you tweak and prod and do some other things to it. But three years in, you're not a novice anymore. And in this particular situation, let's say you reset and you're trying to run it back through, okay. I know that as a lifter, because you are not a rank novice anymore, that you need more training stress to drive the adaptation. So you need more training stress. The idea would be to 
give you enough sub-maximal training stress to drive progress, but not drive too much fatigue. So if I bias this towards volume on your way up, I think I can do that. Versus if I just increase the fatigue, or the intensity, which I don't think gives you enough stress for the amount of fatigue that's being generated. Okay, so let's say that you were warming up for the squat, you were planned on doing five sets of three, or sorry, three sets of five reps across at 100 kilos. And previously you did a single at 90 before that, and a double at 80, and a triple at 60, and then a couple sets of the empty bar. I would have you do sets of five all the way up. Sets of five at the empty bar, sets of five at 60, sets of five at 75, sets of five at 80, like just one set of five, because I'm trying to give you more volume. Now, I don't think there'd be a risk that by the time you got to the work set, there would be enough fuel left. Maybe, but, but I don't care. Oh. Yeah, because, because my goal isn't necessarily predicated on the fact that you complete today's workout at 100. That's not important enough to me. Rather, I'd like you to get used to this amount of training volume and that drive your progress and the next week go 102. Right, so I know that initially, yeah, maybe some fatigue's gonna cre creep in there, but I want you to make week-to-week -week progress. And so one of the tricks, tricks, one of the manipulations I make to, L or used to make to LP when I thought this was worthwhile to do was to just increase the volume of the warmups. Because it's sub-maximal, right? I want you to accumulate more reps at an intensity that doesn't crush you. And I think I can do that by increasing the volume of your warmups. Yeah, I think if you're at the point that your warmups are exhausting you, you're probably, like deconditioned and right. you probably need to be and doing more. So the only way to fix that is by improving your, your tolerance. And so if we have to take a week where we're just, you know, it's our, re we're reconditioning you or getting you back on, on track, then that's fine. It's a mini deload anyway, but I would never do less to just to try to increase the weight on the bar unless I was peaking, hmm. which is a short term, a short lived sort of deconditioning period of time you're deconditioning a lot of fitness adaptations to select for one fitness adaptation, which is absolute strength. You know, and sometimes it's worth doing if you're going to a meet, sure, but many times it's not. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. So the next time we come to Australia, you're not gonna be doing LP. Right. All right, you guys all heard it. If Peter's doing LP, that'll be four years of LP. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is okay not to do a novice linear progression. Yeah. Even as a novice. What do you recommend to novices? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, it just depends. You know, if someone's got a specific goal and a specific time period and context that needs to be accomplished, then that's going to look different. Just a general Yeah, sure. So if somebody's like, hey, I don't know what to do, but I know that resistance training is healthy because I read the latest guidelines, what do? All right? So in general, I try to have somebody resistance train two to three times per week. I'd have them do a squat, a press, a pull, right, of whatever variation I think is, or they think they find, they either can do consistently, repeatedly, uh, or they, and they have access to. So, uh, and I would not differentiate between like a high bar back squat, a low bar back squat, and a front squat, provided that somebody can front squat with a good rack and, you know, not limiting them. So I would differentiate between a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary exercise. Primary exercise being the most fatiguing, the most like load scalability, they can, you know, you can go very, very heavy. I would make a secondary exercise being somewhat similar to the first one, but less fatiguing. So in the case of squatting, it might be like a pause squat, for instance, right? Still pretty similar, but less fatiguing because the absolute loading is less. And then a tertiary one in the instance of a squat might be split squat, lunges, box step ups, leg press, something like that, right? So you could do that for each of the, the squat movement variant, a pull variant, and a press. One per, of each per day. 
the primary stuff, you'd be in the four to six rep range. Uh, the secondary exercise would be in the sort of six to 10 rep range and the tertiary would be 10 to 15 reps. And you'd keep the RPE about RP8. The idea would be you'd warm up using that rep range all the way up, hit a top set at RP8 on week one and you're doing one work set. Because on, this, on the way up, you've done enough volume to sort of get a training effect. Week two, add a set. Week three, add a set. So now you're at three working sets at RP8 across. Do not add any sets until the objective and subjective measures of performance, right, or improvements are not improving anymore. So effectively, if your estimated 1RM is not going up, right, if other metrics and you're taking anthropometric measurements, so waist not going down, uh, muscle cross-sectional area is not improving, your cardiorespiratory performance isn't improving, for instance, whatever things you're tracking, if they're not improving, at that point, I think you need, you need to change the formulation or change the dose. But the idea would be we've built you up to this sort of training program. Let's run it as long as it continues to work by whatever metrics we're tracking. And then once it stops working, you change. That would be the Barbell Medicine novice training program. It's, yeah, it's in Excel. <laughs> yeah, it's in Excel. It's something I keep playing with, right? Because you want to put out something you know, that's good and you're res taking responsibility for it. And it's just all. Yeah, exactly. So I'm conflicted by the fact that I think it'd be very important, very helpful to the community versus it's not perfect yet. What's perfect? Well, I know, man. Look, <laughs> I wake up. Yeah, yeah. My, my conscience wakes me up at 4 a.m. saying, you know, you had a typo in this one line. Yeah. So if you want to go fix that. Yeah. So anyway, um, so we'll see. That, that's on the to-do list. And I hopefully that should be done pretty soon. I just I, I keep playing around with it. And I think a lot of the, the biggest reason that's holding that back, you just need to have enough supplemental text to c show people why we're doing what we're doing, give them tools, right? So the idea is that we don't want to just, oh, you do this program and you always need us for every session to review your technique, to review your exercise selection choice, to review what you're going to do with your programming. We want to give you the tools and then you do it yourself and go out and help other people do it, right? So we need to give people enough tools to do that. And that's what we want to do. Um, I don't want to have a business where you need us to do everything. I don't want you to rely on us. I want to improve your self-efficacy with this stuff. So that's why I think the biggest holdup of this program is like explaining to people why are we picking exercises the way we're doing it? Why are we picking rep ranges the way we're doing it? And that ends up being a pretty substantial task. Would you be willing to like um, change the program to uh, get the client to comply? Oh, it, infinitely. If someone is like machines only, I'm like, all right, cool. So it's going to be like leg press, leg extension, and then maybe like, you know, something else, glute bridges or whatever. At what point do you have the conversation with your client that it's like, this is a trade-off? It's not you, it's me. Sure, right. Well, so it depends on what they want. If they have no desire to ever go to a powerlifting meet, right, then I don't care if they squat bench deadlift press. I mean, really, I, I like those for myself because it's fun and rewarding to me, and I like coaching them because, you know, I'm good at it, had enough experience, and I think they're very economical from a training perspective, provided you actually care about strength in these arbitrary movements that was somehow made important throughout the history of time. But if somebody has no aspirations to do that, and I'm like, and they really feel better doing machines, do machines. If they say the same thing about kettlebells, like, I mean, okay. <laughs> I think you're compromising your strength performance in certain tasks, and perhaps your training economy, sure. But all it, engaging in program uh, progressive overload like resistance training of any kind is better than not yeah. yeah and further I'd be hard pressed to say yeah you know if you do the low bar back squat instead of the leg press you're gonna get better results yeah. 
Better results in what? Low bar back squatting? Sure, but it's not gonna lower your A1C an additional half point. It's not gonna make your blood pressure get better by you know, 10 millimeters of mercury comparatively. That's, that's stupid. You know, that's made up if people are saying that. I hope people aren't saying that, because that would be. I, I don't think anyone's saying Yeah, that. all right. Let us formally end the, the Q&A. Sure. Uh, and cool. then if, if you have some more questions as we're breaking down, you know, feel free to corner us. Right. Thank you, Thanks, guys. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. There's a, only Ezra's in the front row. Every, like, do we smell? I mean, <laughs> dude, I thought that it was me, but it was actually you. <laughs>